You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. Hello, everybody. It's Pastor John, and today we're continuing our study in chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel. I want to warn you that we're going to be throwing a lot of different scriptures at you today, really from all different parts of the Bible, even though our focus is on Mark chapter 12. And that's because we're going to see that Jesus wants to reveal himself to the religious leaders and the crowds. And that's really what the whole Bible does. The whole Bible points to Jesus. So we're going to be looking at passages from a lot of different sections today. If you've missed the last few podcasts, we have watched three different groups of religious leaders take shots at Jesus. They've approached him with a series of questions. In last week's podcast, it seems like the question was sincere. I think the scribe was genuinely looking for an answer as to which commandment was the greatest. But in the first two encounters, it was clear The questions asked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees were questions that were intended to trap Jesus. They were loaded questions. They weren't really seeking truth. Instead, they were trying to alienate Jesus from the crowds, from his supporters, or they were trying to get him to say something against the Torah, or even trying to get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. So if you think back, the Pharisees had asked about whether it was right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Then the Sadducees gave him this ridiculous scenario about a woman who had married seven different brothers and then asked which one would be her husband at the resurrection, even though they didn't even believe in a resurrection. So clearly they weren't seeking truth. And then last week, the scribe asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. Jesus has answered each of these questions with such skill and wisdom that in Mark 12, 34, the Bible declares, after that, no one dared ask him any questions. The debate is over, and Jesus stands alone, victorious. Now, I don't know what image that brings to your mind. Maybe, you, uh, maybe you're a fan of the TV show Survivor, and you picture the the one survivor who stands alone at the end of the season. I kind of get this image in my mind of the old WWE wrestling battle royals. And that's where all the different wrestlers would get in the ring at the same time. And they just keep fighting it out until only one guy is left. Anybody out here listening, a WWE fan Now you can be honest. I won't judge you at least not out loud. (laughs) So Jesus is the last man standing. But instead of just walking away victorious, he's going to actually turn the tables now, and Jesus is going to start asking questions. And he's going to use this opportunity to try and teach the crowds and the religious leaders. And so he begins by asking a question about the Messiah. Now, unlike the religious leaders whose questions were meant to trap, Jesus wants to reveal himself. He has a a genuine purpose, a genuine desire to help those listening understand who he is. And essentially, he's asking, do you know who I am? To me, this is one of the most amazing attributes about God, that he seeks to reveal himself to us. 
I, I just confess that is mind-blowing to me when I really think about it, that the God of the universe, the God who is so powerful, he spoke the universe into existence, wants to reveal himself to me and to you. He invites you and me to know him in a personal way. And if that doesn't rock your world, you either think much too highly of yourself or not nearly highly enough of him. King David wrestled with this idea. We read it in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. He writes, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think of them? human beings that you should care for them. See, David wrestled with this idea of why would God want to reveal himself to simple human beings? Now, if you look through scripture, God reveals himself to us in different ways. There's general revelation. So that's the way that God reveals himself through creation, through the laws of science and nature. You know, we look around and and creation reveals to us uh, an, an organizer, it reveals to us a creator. Uh, we're in the fall season here in northern Utah, and all the colors are just at their peak, maybe slightly past their peak now, but I just don't know how you can look at that and not recognize a creator. It, it's just incredibly beautiful. In addition to general revelation, there's also special revelation which includes the written revelation of God, the Bible. God has revealed himself to us through his word. And then finally, there is the personal revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually the pinnacle of God's revelation to humanity. He is God in the flesh. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God is like, look at the personal revelation of God, Jesus Christ. If you want to know how God thinks, how God acts, look to Jesus, because Jesus is the visible representation of God the Father. Now, it's so important that we know who Jesus is. And I would say it's the most important thing about us, because what we believe about Jesus And how we respond to that belief is going to determine our eternity. So that's the question we're going to frame today's podcast in, is do we have Jesus right? Now, before we get into Mark chapter 12, I want to read the passage of Scripture that's going to be the basis for Jesus's question. So as Jesus asks this question, he's going to use a passage from the Old Testament. And that passage comes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. 
he will shatter heads over the whole earth. But he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. Now, if some of that sounds familiar to you, that's because Psalm 110 is used a lot in the New Testament. Portions of Psalm 110 are quoted or alluded to over 30 times in the New Testament. So here we see Jesus quote it. Peter referenced it, as did Paul, and so did the author of Hebrews. Now, for a little context on Psalm 110, it was originally written as a coronation psalm. And so that's a psalm that would have been sung when a new king was installed in Israel. So that's the backdrop for the question that Jesus is going to ask the religious leaders and the crowds. And now we can finally jump into our text in Mark chapter 12. And we're beginning in verse 35. It says, Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, it wasn't just the religious leaders who thought the Messiah would be the son of David. Really, that was the commonly held belief for for all of Israel. A typical Jewish person in Jesus' time would have told you that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And they weren't wrong about this. They, they had that part right, but they only had a partial understanding of the Messiah's identity. If you think back a few weeks ago when Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus, the beggar screamed, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, Bartimaeus thought that Jesus was the Messiah and hence the title Son of David. As he rode into Jerusalem during his triumphal entry, the crowds were chanting, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So again, it was commonly thought that the Messiah would come from the line of David. We've been studying Mark's gospel. If we were in Matthew's gospel, which was written primarily to a Jewish audience, we would see that he uses the title Son of David to describe Jesus much more frequently. You'll see it in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 21. In fact, Matthew uses that title more than any of the other Gospels because his primary audience is Jewish. He wanted his Jewish readers and listeners to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he uses that term, Son of David. So this is the part they got right. The Old Testament did teach that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Now, there's lots and lots of passages, but we're just going to cover a few verses that teach this. The first one is Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Another Old Testament passage that proclaims the Messiah will come from the line of David is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then lastly, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now, in that second Samuel passage where it starts out and says, the Lord declares he will make a house for you, he's talking to David. So that whole conversation from God is to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we see that all three of these passages, and there are many more, confirm that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And you can see why Israel was looking for that conquering king Messiah. There is a lot of militaristic language in both Psalm 110 and these other verses. Psalm 110 talks about a powerful kingdom and ruling over enemies. It says, when you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you and will strike down many kings. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. Just so many different images of of war and the military in that Psalm 110 passage. And then even in Jeremiah and Isaiah, we still get this idea of a conquering king. It's interesting in the second Samuel passage, this is one of those prophecies that that had a partial fulfillment and then a a total fulfillment, right? The partial fulfillment was King Solomon. King Solomon was the descendant who would build a temple for the Lord, and his kingdom was strong. You know, he was considered the wisest man on earth at the time. He had the, the greatest kingdom on earth at the time. But he did drift away from God towards the end of his life. We know that one of his downfalls was many of his wives served foreign gods, and he ended up serving other gods. And so God did discipline him like he said he would do in Second Samuel. But he didn't completely take the kingdom away. So there's this ultimate fulfillment with the Messiah. The the last verse in that passage, it says, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. Well, that didn't happen with David's physical kingdom. We know that after Solomon died, when his son came into power, that the, the nation of Israel was split into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom, and that both of those kingdoms would be conquered eventually and sent into exile. So that wasn't fulfilled through Solomon. That verse was fulfilled through the Messiah. That verse is talking about Jesus. So we see that they were right, that the Messiah was going to be from the line of David. That's the part they had correct. But now let's look at what they missed because they they didn't get the full picture. We're in verse 36 and 37 now. For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah, my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. And the first thing I want you to notice is that when speaking of Psalm 110, Jesus affirms that the author, King David, was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These weren't David's words. These were God's words through David. All of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is God-breathed. We know that from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. The words that the original authors wrote down were the exact words God wanted them to communicate, nothing more and nothing less. So Jesus affirms the Holy Spirit's role in writing Psalm 10 and that David was the one whom the Holy Spirit spoke through to write it. And it's in the very first verse of Psalm 110 that we see the fuller identity of the Messiah. The religious leaders were excited about the militaristic part of the prophecy. They were excited that someone from the line of David would establish Israel's rule again, that they would bring dominance to Israel and and a place of prominence. But they missed this important detail in the first verse. So it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, if you look in your Bible, that first Lord, it's written in all caps. Now, the O, the R, and the D are smaller in size, but you'll see that they're capitalized in your Bible. This means it is talking about Yahweh. And normally when Yahweh is used without a specific reference to God the Son or the Holy Spirit, we assume it's talking about God the Father. So the first Lord in that sentence, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is God the Father. You'll notice the second Lord is not all capitalized. And the original word here was Adonai. Adonai can be and is used to identify God in the Bible, but it's also used for earthly kings or anyone who has greater authority than the speaker. So think about this for a moment. King David wrote this. What human could be greater than the king? In that culture, for a Jewish person, no human was greater than the king of Israel. Only a divine Messiah would fit that description. David is citing God's words in which God the Father tells God the Son to sit at his right hand until he makes Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet. The main point Jesus is trying to communicate is that David would never call one of his descendants Lord if he were merely a child, grandchild, great-grandchild, great-great-grandchild, or any other number of greats that you want to put in front of it. David called the Messiah Lord because of his divinity. He called him Lord because even though he would be a descendant of David, he would be greater than David. There's also something significant in the fact that God the Father told God the Son to sit at his right hand. He told him to sit because after his death and resurrection, the work was finished. There was nothing more that Jesus needed to do. 
The author of Hebrews echoes this in Hebrews 8, verse 1. He writes, Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. Jesus sat down at the place of honor because the victory is sure. There is nothing more he has to do. That's why he said, it is finished, just before he died on the cross. Jesus had faced all the temptations that Satan could throw at him. He faced everything we face because he was fully human, and yet he never sinned. He was perfect when he went to the cross, and therefore his sacrifice was sufficient, and the work was done. The last thing we see in this passage is that Jesus will sit at the right hand of God until God has humbled his enemies beneath his feet. You know, if you grew up reading the King James Version like I did, that that phrase is, until I make your enemies a footstool. That's certainly not something that we would say today. We don't really use that type of analogy. But this idea of making your enemies a footstool, it literally meant to walk upon the necks of your conquered enemies that as they lay down slain, that you would walk over them and walk on their necks. This was a common practice of the Eastern princes in biblical times. In fact, we see a situation in Joshua where Joshua did it to the five kings that he had conquered in Joshua 10. So the full picture Jesus is painting of the Messiah, the son of David, is someone who is from the line of David, but at the same time is also greater than David. And in Revelation 22.6, Jesus explicitly describes how he fulfills both of those. Revelation 22.6, Jesus is talking, and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. In his question to the religious leaders, Jesus isn't just telling them that the Messiah is greater than David. He's claiming that he is greater than David. The Pharisees had heard the crowds. They knew that people were calling Jesus son of David. They knew many in the crowds thought Jesus was the Messiah. We saw this major shift where Jesus is no longer kind of running away from that title like he did earlier in Mark's gospel, but he is receiving that title. He's making it clear that he's the Messiah. And so again, the question Jesus is really asking the religious leaders is, do you know who I am? I think it's the same question he still asks us today. Do you know who I am? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you have Jesus right? It's so important that we have this, so let's spend some time talking about what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. Jesus is a single person with two natures, divine and human. And these two natures are united in his person without any confusion, change, or loss. Now, we could spend multiple sermons just on this, so I really want to encourage you that if you want to dig deeper into this, check out our Sis Theo series at Pursue God, which is short for Systematic Theology. You can find that at PursueGod.org. And check out Lesson 4. 
Lesson four is titled, Who is Jesus and Why It Matters? It'd be a great lesson to really dive into the nature of Jesus and to cover that with your small group, with your mentor, or with your family. But we're going to hit some of the highlights of that as we wrap up today. So Jesus is a single person with two natures. Now, when we say person, that doesn't mean flesh and blood human being, although that is one of Jesus's two natures. He is fully human. But by person, when we're talking about God, by person, we mean we're talking about an individual being that has a mind, a will, and emotions, and therefore can communicate and have relationships. So Jesus is one person with those two natures, his divine nature that he shares equally and eternally with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the human nature that he took on when he came to earth, took on flesh, and was born of a woman. And it's important to know that Jesus isn't part God and part human. Both are fully integrated in him. And the fancy theological term for that is the hypostatic union, if you want to go show off to your friends. <laughs> so let's start by talking about the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. You know, I've, I've seen videos on the internet where people will make the statement that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's just not accurate. Jesus did claim to be God multiple times. In fact, I'll show you a couple of examples where Jesus personally claims his, uh, his divinity. And then throughout the Bible, multiple authors assert the divinity of Jesus. It's, it's all throughout Scripture. So let's look at where Jesus does it personally first. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in a confrontation with the religious leaders, and he tells them that Abraham looked forward to his coming. He says, Abraham saw it and was glad. And when Jesus says that, the religious leaders respond. They say, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus responded, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. And when he said this, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why did they want to stone him? Well, they wanted to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. And if he isn't God, that would be blasphemy. Now, Jesus, if he wasn't claiming that, could have certainly said, Oh, wait a minute, guys, that's not what I meant. He could have put an end to that, but he didn't, because that was the claim he was claiming to be God. Here's another one where Jesus personally claims his divinity. It's in John chapter 14. He's talking with the disciples, and he makes this claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Now, I'm sure they were all confused because they hadn't seen the Father. They hadn't seen God, or at least they didn't think they had. And Philip is the one who's brave enough to speak out. I, I would imagine they were all questioning, but Philip says, Well, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus responds to Philip, Don't you know me, Philip? 
See, there's that question again. Don't you know me? Do you know who I am? And Jesus continues. He says, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, Jesus is claiming his divinity. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 22, 13, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. That's a title that was used for God the Father in Revelation 1. So Jesus claims to be God. Now, in addition to Jesus's personal claims about his divinity, the Holy Spirit inspired other authors of the Bible to proclaim the divinity of Jesus. John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2 that though Jesus is God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead gave up his divine, took the position of a humble slave, and was born as a human being. Not only does the Bible talk about Jesus' divinity, Jesus also did things that only God can do. We're told that he holds all things together in Colossians 1. Earlier in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we saw Jesus forgive sins. Only God can do that. When the religious leaders questioned this, and rightfully so, they, they did get that part right, only God can forgive sins. They just didn't recognize that Jesus was God. Jesus then physically heals the man and says that he did that so that they would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We also see in the Bible that Jesus receives prayer. Jesus is worthy of worship and he received worship. These are things that only God can do. Jesus is clearly divine. The Bible is also very clear, though, about Jesus's humanity. Hebrews 2.17 says it like this, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. You know, Jesus was subject to fatigue, hunger, thirst, physical pain. He also experienced human emotions like anger, grief, and joy. In fact, he told his disciples in Matthew 26 that his soul was crushed with grief to the point of death as he asked them to stay and keep watch with him. So Jesus experienced all the physical and emotional things that we experience. And in addition to that, he was tempted as we are. Again, from the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. It gives me so much encouragement that Jesus understands our weaknesses. He's been there. He knows what temptation is like, but amazingly, he never sinned. He was sinless in word, thought, and deed. So what does this mean for us? Maybe you're still checking out Christianity and you're still trying to decide who Jesus is. And you might be asking, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is both fully God and fully human? It matters because the relationship between God and man is reconciled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible tells us there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus had to be fully human because he had to be able to die. Have you ever thought about that? See, God is eternal. God has always been and will always be. Jesus had to take on humanity so that he could experience death. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die to pay for the sins of the world. To bring that much closer to home, someone had to die to pay for my sins. Someone had to die to pay for your sins. Jesus also had to be human to fulfill the prophecies and the promises made in Scripture about the Messiah. So he had to be human. But Jesus had to be divine. He had to be fully God because that's what enabled him to live a perfect life. Without his divinity, he would not have been a worthy sacrifice because he would have sinned. Only God could save his creation. The reason this matters is because when we get Jesus right, we can respond to him in faith. Mark let off his gospel at the very beginning by telling us this is the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. And it's good news because through Jesus, we can experience forgiveness of sin. We can have our relationship with God restored. We can not only experience a full and abundant life on earth, but we get to experience eternal life with God. We do that by coming to Jesus and recognizing him for who he is and what he's done. He is God the Son, and he lived a perfect life. He was crucified on a criminal's cross. He died. He was buried, but he rose again, and he sits in the place of honor at the right hand of God. And once we recognize who he is and what he's done, then we, we can respond to that. We can ask him to forgive us. We confess our sins to him. We acknowledge that we're broken, that we've rebelled against a perfect and holy God. And we repent and we ask Jesus to take over. We ask him to start calling the shots in our lives. We ask him to be our Lord and Savior. And I would just encourage you, if you've never done that and Jesus has revealed himself to you today, you can do that today. Feel free to to reach out to us. Feel free to connect with a, a trusted believer in your community that can talk more about that. For those of us who've already made that decision to follow Jesus, I would remind us that one of the ways Jesus still seeks to reveal himself to the world is through his followers. That you and I are supposed to be reflecting the light of Christ to a dark world, and I pray that we'd be intentional about that this week. Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.